The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I think that you, you, know, you correctly know the civilians will have these data gathering devices on them. Of course, I'm thinking here about cell phones, smartwatches, all of the devices that we carry around with us in modern life every day, each one of them a data generating item on the battlefield and militaries undoubtedly will seek to exploit that data to gather information about civilians to gather information about where they are where they're going and how they relate to the positions of military forces i'm stephanie pell and this is the lawfare podcast september 30th 2022 in modern day warfare data is considered a weapon system And the Russia-Ukraine armed conflict gives us some perspective into what warfare looks like in a data-rich, hyper-connected world. To talk about the pervasiveness of data in contemporary and future warfare, I sat down with Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean of the Academic Board at West Point, and Robert Lawless, Assistant Professor in the Department of Law at West Point, to discuss their new piece, Data-Rich Battlefields, and the future LOAC, or Law of Armed Conflict. We talked about the growing importance for militaries to be able to exploit data on the battlefield, the deception arms race that is emerging in the modern battlefield, and some key ways in which data-rich battlefields are putting pressure on the Law of Armed Conflict. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 30th. Shane Reeves and Rob Lawless on data-rich battlefields and the future LOAC. Shane and Rob, you both recently co-authored a piece entitled Data-Rich Battlefields and the Future of LOAC, or the Law of Armed Conflict. Before we talk about your piece, I'll give the standard disclaimer. The views expressed in the piece and during this discussion are your views and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Military Academy, the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So Shane, you and Rob bluntly state in your piece that in modern warfare, 
data are referred to as a weapon system. What do you mean by that? Uh, in future armed conflict between powers of relative equal military and economic strength, the winner uh, is clearly going to be the side that can more efficiently gather, process, analyze, and act decisively on available battlefield data. So the role of data in contemporary and future warfare is that crucially important. The significance of the role of data in future armed conflict truly cannot be overstated. States recognize this and are beginning to prepare for that reality right now. So, for example, uh, the United States Department of Defense recently introduced a data strategy in which it tasks all Department of Defense leaders to, quote, manage, secure, and use data for operational effect, end quote. DOD wants military operators to use data for battlefield advantage and to drive informed decisions at all levels of command. The DOD data strategy calls DOD a, quote, data-centric organization that uses data at speed and scale for operational advantage and increasing efficiency, end quote. So subordinate units, such as the United States Army's 18th Airborne Corps and 82nd Airborne Division, have followed suit, proclaiming a move towards being data-centric uh, operational units. DOD recently stated in a press release that the concept of joint all-domain command and control is a battlefield network concept that will enable the joint force to, quote, sense, make sense, and act on information across the battle space quickly using automatic, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, and machine learning to deliver informed solutions via a resilient and robust network environment. This is a recognition of the critical role of data in future war. Harnessing data is a warfighting necessity going forward to defeat adversaries. So again, it's really the state that can gather, process, analyze, and apply data the quickest that's going to have a significant military advantage going forward. And this isn't simply restricted to the United States. NATO, too, has sought to accelerate a digital transformation uh, seeking to share relevant data in real, in near real time among allies and partners across all five military domains, uh, finding that the ability to do so will determine superiority on the future battlefield. And Rob, now turning specifically to the armed conflict in Ukraine, you and Shane make the claim earlier in your piece that the parties are waging a ruthless data war. And you know, apropos of, of what Shane just talked about, that such information-rich battlefields are the future of warfare. What do you mean by ruthless data war? And, and who, other than Russia and Ukraine, are the players influencing or engaging in data-driven or information-based elements of a conflict? It's clear that, the, that data... Uh, serves a strategic, operational, and tactical role in the Ukraine conflict. In other words, data plays a role at all levels of warfare. At the strategic level, we saw before even the war started, open source intelligence in the form of satellite imagery signaled Russia's troop buildup near the Ukraine border. Uh, it signals Russia's intended aggressive invasion Russia, for its part, has poured resources into efforts to use data to confuse, to confuse Ukraine, Ukrainian armed forces, to confuse those states that support Ukraine, to confuse civilians in and outside of Ukraine. An example of this would be the 
disinformation campaigns that Russia has engaged in, perhaps most prominently the false flag operation that it engaged in at the beginning uh, or near the beginning of its invasion, trying to signal that it wasn't responsible for the invasion, rather that to deflect blame for the invasion or aspects of the invasion. It has attacked news agencies. It has attacked uh, news infrastructure and equipment. It has censored its people. It has tried to censor people beyond its borders. At the lower levels, at the operational and tactical levels of warfare, data has proven to be uh, crucial. A a good example of this is the use of drones uh, on both sides of the conflict. Uh, Of course, drones are not new to warfare. They uh, featured prominently in the Middle East in the counterinsurgency wars that the United States, for example, was involved in. But their prevalence, uh, not just in Ukraine, but at the front, at the edge of the battlefield, at the front lines of the battlefield in Ukraine, are a unique feature of that armed conflict. Uh, they are spread out of report. Reports indicate they are spread across the front lines of, of hot battlefields, constantly gathering data, and not just gathering data to engage directly in targeting operations, uh, that is, uses a lethal force on the battlefield. It's this data is being used for all aspects of military operations. What Ukraine is doing and Russia are doing is they're using this data that they collect to create an unprecedented picture of the battlefield in its completeness. Russia, for example, is is loading reconnaissance drones with digital catalogs of optical and infrared images of military equipment used in NATO countries. And they're using this data to help develop a more refined picture of the battlefield, identify potential enemy positions, identify civilian positions and concentrations of civilians. And Ukraine, for its part, is is using a wide array of drones to to counter Russia's uh, strength. Uh, This includes using off-the-shelf commercial drones, um, and they've been using those to great effect by Ukrainians. This, for example, has allowed uh, Ukraine forces to avoid Russia's electronic jamming capabilities. So the bottom line is that data and, and data operations, for example, using drones, it's playing a crucial operation in the, in the situation in Ukraine. I think Rob has is, is, uh, hit it directly on point. The only maybe slight addition would be that the rest of the world is watching this happen and is taking notes and evolving quickly their own militaries to uh, to understand how uh, this use of data is so integral and, and synchronized with ongoing military operations. And so I think in future armed conflicts um, around the world, this this will just become the norm, this use of data. So is it fair to say then that we are at least getting glimpses of what warfare looks like in a hyper-connected data-rich world? Yeah, Stephanie. I mean, it's no secret We've seen a multi-decade trend towards the incorporation of information technology networks into every aspect of society and human life. Militaries, of course, are, are not an exception. Weapon systems, logistical operations, command and control systems incorporate and are heavily reliant upon IT network connections. This generates an increasing amount of data. So, for example, weapon systems generate information about their readiness and resiliency. 
logistical networks generate data about surpluses and shortages on supplies, equipment, and material. Command and control systems generate data about the movement and tactical maneuver of troop units. Much of this data is generated automatically by virtue of the, the fact of interconnectedness rather than by any conscious act or decision by, by a particular actor or, or a military member. But this data is immensely revealing, and therefore it's extraordinarily valuable without question. Belligerent states or other sophisticated armed actors will seek to gather and use data to further a particular war aim. So in our view, Ukraine is absolutely offering in real time a glimpse into the future of warfare. Currently, the use of data in military operations as seen in, in, uh, in the battlefields of Ukraine, it seems a little ad hoc, disorganized, preliminary. But this is, this is the end of, of that ad hoc um, use of data. And it's the beginning of a, a trend where states will integrate data in operations um, involving and against data in every aspect of their military operations. And we see efforts to systematize data already across those militaries and not just state militaries, those advanced non-state actors are also taking note. So Rob, as Shane indicated, if if we are sort of seeing the end of of the ad hoc era, if you will, certainly to maintain a military advantage through the use of data, um, militaries will be required to have the ability to collect and process the data. What can you tell us about the U.S. military's investment in and use of data gathering and processing technology? Well, Shane earlier gave a sort of overview of DOD's um, recent policy initiatives, its recent announcements in this regard. I can state that the, these policies are being implemented today and have been for some time. The U.S. Army, for example, has units, entire units committed to thinking about the issues of future warfare, issues related to what that battlefield looks like, issues related to how technological advances can be implemented towards war, to future warfighting. Um, we here at, the, at West Point, the Lieber Institute, we have a multi-year partnership with U.S. Army Futures Command, with the U.S. Army's Capabilities Development Command, and these units, we are working with these units as they bring together data scientists, network engineers, mathematicians, and crucially, uh, a large array of military service members with operational experience in all warfighting areas. So I'm thinking about direct combat, what we call movement and maneuver, uh, logistics, command and control, artillery, air defense, and the list goes on. These, these organizations are bringing these folks together to think hard about that future battlefield, what that operational looks like, operational environment looks like. And, and now, now these groups are thinking about different technologies, artificial intelligence, robotics, how to team humans and machines together on the battlefield, synthetic biology, lots of different technologies and ways of using them, but there is a sort of connective tissue that data data plays. It, it, its importance is sort of a thread that runs throughout all of these areas. And each of these organizations is thinking 
about it during their research efforts to try to understand the crucial importance of data on that battlefield and all the technologies that they research, all the ways in which those technologies that they seek to operationalize those technologies, they always have an eye. These organizations always have an eye and appreciation on the role that data will play and how crucial it will be to harness that data in every aspect of military operations. And I can say, Stephanie, that the the United States, of course, is not unique here. Uh, Other countries are thinking about this too. Partner countries, NATO countries and other partner countries that that might in the future be coalition partners or or working with the United States, but also, crucially, uh, potential adversaries. In fact, all of these DOD organizations that I referred to uh, earlier, including Uh, U.S. Army Futures Command, including Army's Capabilities Command, they always include what they call threat cells within their organizations. And the job of these these threat cells is to try to understand how these technologies might be used by those potential adversaries. And of course, to bring it back to data, what role data will play in those adversaries' military operations, how they will harness it, and how that will impact the battlefield, how it will impact U.S. forces and coalition forces. So Shane, as as part of data warfare, you and Rob make the argument or the claim that states surely will continue efforts to push as many sensors into the battlefield as quickly as possible, as well as take advantage of the preponderance of civilian data gathering devices in and near conflict zones. Can you tell us a bit more about the second part of that statement? Um, How might we expect states to take advantage of civilian data gathering devices in and near conflict zones? Sure. There are two ways in which the pervasiveness of, of data has increased in modern warfare and will continue to increase as we anticipate future warfare. First, there are and will continue to be technological developments that result in increased data. Other words, data where there once was none. Uh, We alluded to this a a bit earlier in our conversation. The vast array of new battlefield technology and emerging weapon systems are crowding the battlefield with data signals that simply were not present on the analog battlefield not that long ago. Second, there are and will continue to be technological developments that allow capture of this new data, as well as data that has, that has always been generated. So if I can just give, give an example here, what we're thinking about on this uh, last um, note is the vast amount of data generated by people on the battlefield, right? all, all people on the battlefield, whether they're combatants, warfighters, or civilians. You know uh, the heat signatures that are generated by human bodies, vehicles, homes, other items. Electromagnetic signals are another example of this. They come from every single device or con- a piece of connected equipment that's that's connected to a network on the battlefield. And the sensors that are being developed currently will become will increasingly be sophisticated. They will be increasingly more finely tuned to the data that militaries and civilian populations generate and have always generated. 
militaries will employ these sensors undoubtedly, not only to gather data about militaries, but also to gather data about civilians on and around the battlefield. And this will have enormous operational significance. It'll also have legal significance, which I hope that uh, we'll speak about in a little bit. But you note, Stephanie, in your question that these, these data gathering capabilities will not be limited to specific military technology. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think, I think that you, you, know, you correctly note that civilians will have these data gathering devices on them. Of course, I'm thinking here about cell phones, smartwatches, all of the devices that we carry around with us in modern life every day, each one of them a data generating item on the battlefield and militaries undoubtedly will seek to exploit that data to gather information about civilians, to gather information about where they are, where they're going and how they relate to the positions of military forces. So Shane, with the increasing growth and importance of data in the battlefield, your piece addresses issues that should be considered in international law, specifically the law of armed conflict. For those listeners that may not be as familiar, when we talk about the law of armed conflict or, or LOAC, what are we referring to? How should we understand LOAC in the broader context of international law? Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. So the law of armed conflict, also referred to as international humanitarian law, is a specialized subset of international law that has been developed to regulate the conduct of hostilities. It does not apply generally, but rather only during armed conflict. In this situation, this is an international armed conflict, as both the Ukraine and Russia are states. This, this which triggers the entirety of the law of armed conflict, in contrast to a non-international armed conflict, which has more restrictive rules when it's a conflict between a state and a non-state actor. The law of armed conflict is inapplicable during peacetime, and therefore Rob's in my article is not about the domestic law or the human rights issues implicated by the use of emerging technologies. It's also important to understand that the law of armed conflict disregards the overall legality of a war or a conflict. In other words, it doesn't matter who started it. It's just important to understand that the obligations and rights equally apply to both actors. So in this case, Russia is clearly the aggressor of they, as they have continued the invasion they started in 2014 in Crimea. Ukraine remains the defender, but the law of armed conflict applies to both parties equally. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Rob, your article then spends a good bit of time talking about what some of the key LOAC issues are related to data-rich battlefields. And, and you identify three categories, and I'd like to talk through each of them with you. Do you want to start with your discussion of targeting rules and decision-making? Yes, that sounds like a good place to start. Uh, the most obvious way, uh, perhaps, that the prevalence of data on that future battlefield, that contemporary and future battlefield, may have uh, legal repercussions in is targeting. Now, targeting under the law of armed conflict, targeting is referred to as attack, right? An attack. An attack is a use of lethal force uh, against an opponent, right? Against an adversary. Now, of course, during in peacetime, this is the distinction that Shane was mentioning a moment ago. During peacetime, general legal rules, general domestic and human rights norms make lethal force a narrow exception to a general rule. In armed conflict, it's the opposite. In armed conflict, lethal targeting as a first resort is the norm. Of course, lethal targeting is limited by certain targeting rules and principles. So for example, first, and perhaps most prominently, is the principle of distinction. Attackers must discriminate between lawful targets and unlawful targets. Lawful targets being, of course, enemy combatants and being objects which qualify as military objectives, right? The object's location or, or use or nature makes an effective military contribution and uh, destroying or neutralizing it offers a definite military advantage under the circumstances ruling at the time. On the other hand, unlawful targets would include civilians, and civilian objects. Those objects would serve civilian uh, needs and serve no military purpose. Now, while the law of armed conflict prohibits making civilians the object of attack, it does not flatly prohibit civilian death, injury, or destruction when it's, let's say, incidental to an attack. It is a reality, unfortunate reality, a tragic reality of war that so-called incidental or collateral damage is a reality. And so the law of armed conflict doesn't flatly prohibit collateral damage. It states that such collateral harm, harm to civilians, uh, destruction of civilian property, must not be disproportionate, which under the law of armed conflict means excessive, when compared to the anticipated military gain of a particular attack. This rule is referred to as the proportionality rule, and it is operationalized through a requirement that combatants take feasible precautions. And precautions are efforts to avoid or at least minimize civilian injury and death uh, and, and civilian destruction. Now, in light of these rules that I just provided an overview of, it's clear how data could aid targeting decision-making and further compliance with law of armed conflict targeting rules. The logic is fairly straightforward, right? More information, more data, uh, greater clarity on the battlefield, uh, a greater, greater uh, clarity of battlefield picture, uh, which in turn would lead to 
more accurate decision making. And we could see evidence. We, we see evidence of this in Ukraine, right? Ukrainians, Ukrainian armed forces are using data gathering technology, perhaps most prominently drones. They're flooding the, the zone with drones. They're pervasive in, in the battle space. And they're using these drones to observe and find Russian military objectives. And presumably they're using these drones to avoid attacking civilians, who of course are almost all Ukrainians, given the fact that the war is occurring in Ukraine. Now, I want to note two presumptions behind this idea of data on the battlefield aiding uh, decision-making, aiding um, targeting. The first presumption is that states who have this data want to use it to comply with targeting rules. They are, they want, they are willing and able to use it to comply with targeting rules. The second presumption is that states have the ability to collect and process the data that they're gathering, that they're gathering the so-called right data, and that they can understand that data once they have it. And so this will allow me, Stephanie, to transition into the second topic, uh, law of armed conflict topic. And that is the idea that data operations, the way that belligerent parties, warfighters use data on the battlefield will, will, will implicate certain limiting rules um, that are under the law of armed conflict. So the first assumption that I went over a moment ago stated that states with the data want to use it. They will want to use it to comply with targeting rules. Now, this might not be the case, right? This assumption might not be warranted. Some states, and there's evidence that Russia might be one of these in, in Ukraine, they might use this, they might use data they gather without respect for targeting rules. In other words, they would use data not to protect civilians, but against civilians, to inflict harm upon civilians. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned ago, many will be familiar with the reports of Russia doing just this. I'll also note that in addition to the rule protecting civilians from direct attack, there is a rule under the law of armed conflict prohibiting threats of violence whose primary purpose is to spread terror among civilian populations. Now, we might see evidence of uh, Russia doing just this, violating this rule with its use of data on the battlefield. Uh, Russia has uh, engaged in propaganda efforts uh, uh, throughout Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. Now, propaganda, of course, is not unlawful per se. It's not a law of war violation to use propaganda. States can use it, and they do use it, to impact the way civilians and civilian populations think about their own government, the way that civilians think about an armed conflict. But there are reports that suggest that Russia may have overstepped and it may, they may have used propaganda in ways that implicate the rule against terror. So for example, uh, there have been reports of Russia um, using pr propaganda, engaging in propaganda that invokes language of annihilation, invokes language of extermination with respect to Ukrainians. And this um, approaches the line, uh, at least, with respect to the prohibition against causing terror, spreading terror. I want to also talk about that second assumption that I, meant, that I spoke about, the assumption that states will be able to gather and process 
the data they find, that they'll gather the right data, and that they'll be able to understand that data. To understand, this assumption also might, in certain cases, not be warranted. The, the reason why, in, in order to understand why that is, we have to spend a moment talking about deception. Because, of course, while a state will want to clarify, uh, or rather a state will want clarity on the battlefield for itself, of course, clarity about the battlefield for the enemy, for the adversary, is, is completely against its interests. So states will seek to deceive one another. States fighting wars will, will employ deception. And they'll do this by flooding the zone with false data, right? So data that's inaccurate, they will create false and misleading signatures on the battlefield. They'll engage in acts of deception intended to undermine their enemy's understanding of the battlefield picture. In fact, some fear uh, that the prevalence of battlefield data gathering sensors, some of the sensors that we spoke about earlier, will result in a sort of proportionate increase in efforts to deceive. This could fuel what you might call a deception arms race. And so we really need to make sure we understand that belligerents understand, that warfighters understand the rules under the law of armed conflict relating to deception. The basic rule is that so-called ruses of war are lawful, whereas perfidy is unlawful. So ruses of war are lawful acts of deception. Uh, Ruses of war are acts intended to mislead the enemy, to induce the enemy to act recklessly. We've seen examples of this in Ukraine. So there's reports of Ukraine strapping uh, mannequins to trees and other cover. They dress these mannequins in military fatigues. They arm them with fake rifles. Ukrainians have put up scarecrow soldiers armed with mock portable anti-aircraft missiles. They do this to fool Russian pilots. Uh, They've also put um, wooden decoys of HIMARS, of artillery, to try and deceive Russians into attacking the wooden decoys instead of the actual weapon systems. These are ruses of war. They're they're basic deception methods that Ukraine is using lawfully to force Russia into mistakes. There are, however, legal limitations to deception, and this is the rule, the prohibition of perfidy, which I mentioned a moment ago. Perfidy is the invitation of the enemy's confidence that law of war protections apply to a situation with the intent to betray that confidence to kill or injure an enemy. So the classic example of this is when one party feigns serious wounds, feigns what's called hors de combat, meaning that they they feign serious wounds on the battlefield with the purpose to deceive the enemy and to induce the enemy to incord protections that are warranted for injured uh, soldiers, right? So if Ukrainian soldiers feigned uh, or to combat status, feigned uh, injuries, with the intent of tricking Russian soldiers into according them protected status, making them untargetable, and then when the Russian uh, soldiers approached, the Ukrainians betrayed that confidence, betrayed that, that supposed legal protection to then kill and injure Russian combatants. This is, this is perfidy. It's unlawful. 
and it's it's a violation of the law of war. Now, I I just I have to note that the while we haven't seen widespread examples of perfidy uh, or this kind of this kind of unlawful deception in the Ukraine in Ukraine, um, that's not to say that it, it, it we won't have acts of deception in future warfare that that push the boundaries of the law, uh, especially with respect to perfidy. And I go back to my earlier comment about this deception arms race that might ensue from the advancement of technologies that gather and process data. The future battlefield is going to have sensors everywhere, data gathering devices everywhere. They will be ubiquitous is the term that military operators often use. And this is going to make it very difficult, very, very difficult for warfighters to hide on the battlefield. Typically, the way to deceive the enemy on the battlefield is to hide. But when there are sensors everywhere gathering data about everything all the time, it's going to be hard to hide. It's going to be very difficult for combatants to hide. And we anticipate possibly that this will incentivize combatants uh, through, through they'll face the operational pressure not not merely to hide but to engage in mimicry that is to create the impression that they are what they are not right and this this pressure could lead combatants to mimic all manner of different things to, to deceive the enemy including civilians including civilian objects and maybe even civilian infrastructure this will put pressure on the perfidy prohibition this will this will put pressure on the law of war with respect to the rules of deception and how those rules operate. And we, we feel that this is something to keep an eye on as, as this technology develops and, and states, including the United States, begin to implement these sensor capabilities and deception capabilities. How will the law of war respond to this operational pressure to engage in this deep level of deception, including perhaps mimicry. That's an an incredibly interesting observation. And and before I turn to Shane to talk about the third category that you identify, if I can, you've alluded to this, but, but how challenging is it going to be? How much pressure is going to happen on sort of drawing a distinction between what is generally accepted as a ruse of war and and what is perfidy and therefore unlawful. Yes, thanks, Stephanie. I I think uh, the best way to answer this might be to offer an example, right? So imagine in a future armed conflict, a lieutenant, right? A low-level military officer whose job it is, given a very simple order, her job is to, she's an armor officer, right? So she's in charge of a, 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 a small group of tanks, a small unit of tanks that are manned by soldiers. And her job is simply to get across the battlefield. There's a position of advantage that she, that her higher headquarters thinks will uh, confer a military advantage. And so her job is to simply cross the battlefield. It's movement towards maneuver, right? Now, on the bat on the battlefield that I'm suggesting, on the on the battlefield that I think that the technological advances are suggesting, that that is going to be an incredibly difficult task. Standard uh, ways in which combatants have sought to hide 
or, or deceive the enemy with respect to basic movement across the battlefield simply won't be available to that, to that tank commander. And the reason is, is because there will be sensors everywhere. The road that the tanks travel over will have sensors built into them. The buildings, uh, the civilian and military buildings that they go past will have data gathering devices, sensors capable of picking up the movement of each tank and finely detailed understanding of all the military equipment passing by. There'll be drones above. There'll be satellite imagery taken constantly. Not to mention, Stephanie, the civilians that will be presumably be on this battlefield. We see in Ukraine the the prevalence of urban warfare. There are civilians everywhere, civilian infrastructure all around. And and the future, this is what future warfare is going to look like. There will be civilians all across this battlefield, each one of whom will have at least one, probably multiple data gathering devices of the kind we spoke about earlier. In short, Stephanie, what we're what we're looking at here is a battlefield where this platoon leader, this this small unit, can't hide. It can't hide. It can't deceive in this way, in the way that militaries typically deceive. And this is in the simple task of getting across a mile, two miles across the battlefield to a position of advantage. That platoon leader is going to face enormous pressure, enormous pressure, because she can't hide, to, to deceive in other ways, to create the impression that her platoon of tanks isn't a platoon of tanks, but rather is a group of construction trucks or, or other um, non-threatening vehicles that can deceive the enemy even when the sensors are all around. And, and the, lines, the lines are hard. I mean, the, the, per, the perfidy prohibition, um, we understand it in terms of modern warfare and contemporary and past warfare, but exactly how that, how that rule is going to play out on that future battlefield with that level of deception and with that level of even potential mimicry, it's really hard to say. I think it's important that we as attorneys, Shane, myself, those of us at the Lieber Institute, that we pay very close attention to the way that the technology is developing and the ways in which armed forces, both friendly and adversarial, uh, potentially adversarial, use and implement that technology to engage in deception because the law of war is going to have to account for the ways that that deception is implemented and react in a way that both serves the protective interests that the law of war has, but also allows for the operational interests that states will need to achieve on the future battlefield. Wow, thank you. Really interesting and and obviously a a critical area that, that we need to watch in the future. Now, there's a third category, of course, that you raise with respect to LOEC issues related to data-rich battlefield. Shane, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And, you know, Rob just highlighted one of the, it's a consistent theme over the last uh, number of decades about the, the undercutting of the principle of distinction. The principle of distinction being uh, the most significant of the core principles that lie at the codification of, of the law of armed conflict. And the principle of distinction uh, requires that those parties to the conflict 
uh, at all times distinguish between civilian populations and combatants and between civilian objects and military objectives and only direct their operations against those those military objectives. And so what Rob just highlighted is a concerning trend that the blurring of that line, which actually we saw during many of the counterterrorism operations the last number of decades, uh, will continue by this, this uh, blurring of the line between a legal ruse and a perfidious action. On the other hand, there are lots of examples in Ukraine how data is being used to uh, further accountability uh, in regards to LOAC violations. Open source intelligence uh, can be used by anyone and has been used by journalists, NGOs, and even members of the general public to observe and document attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure. Uh, examples would be NGOs such as uh, Bellingcat track evidence of Russia's unlawful use of cluster munitions. Ukraine's prosecutor general has designed a system to crowdsource evidence of war crimes. And, and even at the most local level, we can all imagine that if anything, anything that's taking place on the battlefield is probably being recorded by a number of 15-year-olds with their cell phones out. <laughs> Now, it's important to recognize LOAC doesn't require clairvoyance. Combatants must seek to carry out their duties under targeting rules in good faith based on the information reasonably available to them under the circumstances. If data-rich battlefields reduce the uh, fog of war, as Clausewitz called it, then targeting decision makers may be held to a higher standard. And uh, in a good news way, accountability may may take place in a, in a quicker and more expedient manner. However, both Rob and I would, would caution against too overly optimistic of a view. Uh, as discussed previously, it may or may not be the case that combatants have the ability and willingness to collect, analyze, and implement data on the future battlefield. In any event, the data-rich battlefield may help accountability actions against obvious or egregious LOAC violations, but again, we should be careful to believe that actors have a complete picture uh, of the battlefield or have completely cleared that fog of war that I just discussed. So to wind this up, I note that you two end your piece with the observation that while the potential legal gaps in LOAC resulting from the growing importance in data in armed conflict needs to be addressed and the perfidy example is, is, is a great one. It is important to avoid a heavy-handed approach in filling in said gaps. You say that states will need time to, quote, evaluate how LOAC rules should apply in light of the delicate balance reflected in the law between military and humanitarian considerations. Can you unpack that statement a bit and, and talk a bit more about the delicate balance to which you refer? International law, including the law of armed conflict, is made by states. And states account for two often complementary but sometimes competing interests in forming LOAC rules and principles. And these two competing principles or meta-principles, as we sometimes call them, are military necessity and humanitarianism. This equilibrium permeates the entirety of, of this particular field of international law, and it does this to ensure that force is applied on the battlefield in a manner allowing for the accomplishment of the mission, 
while simultaneously taking appropriate humanic considerations into account. The relationship between these competing principles is, is very delicate. Danger ensues for the international community if either uh, concept gains primacy. For example, overemphasis on military necessity has historically led to horrendous atrocities uh, like many of those that were punished in war crimes tribunals after the Second World War and, and more recent conflicts. Conversely, when humanitarian concerns become dominant, state military actions are unrealistically restricted by burdensome regulations, significantly diminishing the likelihood of compliance. So it's really important that these countervailing principles remain at equilibrium, and it's essential to maintaining the law of armed conflict's effective regulation of warfare. And I'll just add that, Stephanie, there, there's just so much that's still unknown about that future battlefield. You know, Shane and I have tried to offer some examples um, from Ukraine. We've tried to offer some examples about what that future operating environment in, in armed conflict might look like. But the bottom line is that there's just still so much to be unknown. Uh, organizations like U.S. Army Futures Command and Developmental Command they spend their days, and we, we are part of that process here at the Lieber Institute, researching, experimenting, developing better ways to understand that battlefield, what it will look like, what will work, what won't work. And as, the, as solutions or, or potential solutions to those challenges are developed, it is critical that the law remain practicable, that it remain adaptable in light of those changing uh, circumstances, in light of the changing character of warfare, as well as the nature of warfare as, as you know, uses of force between armies and groups of, and states and, and, and war fighters. So, you know, in our article, Shane and I, we caution against a heavy-handed approach, a sort of over-regulatory approach or an approach that wants to find so legal solutions before those operational solutions are fully unpacked. Because as, as Shane just noted, states, states form international law. Nation states are the makers of international law, including the law of armed conflict. And it's critically important that they be given time to understand what that battlefield will look like and how warfighting will occur and what technology will be used and how warfighters will engage in the conduct of hostilities so that they can evaluate the rules, the law of armed conflict rules, as they presently exist and determine for themselves uh, how those rules might be ad adapted or amended or whether new rules are, are warranted and in the end maintain that delicate balance that Shane spoke about, that balance between military considerations and humanitarianism. So Shane and Rob, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, absolutely, Stephanie. Uh, the discussion today is just one example of broader efforts across the entire United States Military Academy. And so here's what I would offer the listeners is to understand how this is just a one indicia of how West Point is uniquely situated to be the intellectual engine that's driving so much of the broader Army's innovation. 
uh, West Point has this, this particular position where we straddle both academia and military practice and couple that with an exceptional academic program. It's a very powerful body that brings together an incredibly diverse blend of intellectual firepower. Our, our faculty are world-renowned experts. They're working right now on the complex problems facing the Army and our nation. Perhaps even more importantly, they're in the classroom every day teaching the next generation of Army leaders who will be called upon to fight and win our nation's wars. And it's really that blend of cadet and faculty academic excellence through teaching, research, and innovation that will be absolutely critical for success on the complex and ambiguous battlefields of tomorrow. And so one of the the, the impetus and, and the reason Rob and I spent time uh, thinking on this and writing on it is so that we can be informing those future combat leaders so that they can join that data-centric um, operational force to give the United States a, a clear military advantage in our future armed conflicts. So thanks very much to both of you. Really appreciate you engaging in this conversation today. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.